Hey, this is Eric Cohn from the Acton Institute. By now, you probably know why there's a podcast episode in your Acton Line feed on a Monday. That's because it isn't an episode of Acton Line. It's the latest episode of our newest podcast, Acton Unwind. Acton Unwind is a weekly roundtable discussion of news and current events through the Acton Institute's lens on the world, promoting a free and virtuous society and connecting good intentions with sound economics. Each week, I'll be joined by Dr. Samuel Gregg and other Acton Institute experts for an exploration of news, politics, religion, and culture. After this week, we'll be bringing you one more episode of Acton Unwind here in the Acton Line podcast feed before moving it over permanently to its own channel. You can look in the show notes for a link to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, or just search Acton Unwind wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy Acton Unwind. Welcome to the Acton Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. Since we're a new podcast, I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website or in the feed for Acton Line, where you got this episode, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode and find the link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so you can help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Mustafa Aikiol, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and an affiliate scholar here at Acton. Just an FYI, we had some audio issues with Sam's audio on the uh, show this week, and we've done our best to clean it up, but you still might notice some issues in there as you listen to this episode. Want to start where everybody's attention in the world is right now, which is in Afghanistan. Uh, as we continue to see the situation unravel, uh, we have had since the last time we talked about this uh, a week ago on Monday, we've heard from officials in the Defense Department and in the military for the United States saying that they're they're working to get every American out um, before. The clock runs out, which is an incredible statement to me and one that you just don't expect to hear from American officials with regard to American citizens who are still trapped there. But where I want to go first, Mustafa, is we're hearing repeated a lot that what is happening right now in Afghanistan was inevitable, Um, that when the United States withdrew, that the kind of chaos that's unfolding was inevitably going to happen, Um, that the government that the United States uh, helped set up post the war in Afghanistan, the beginning of the war in Afghanistan back in 2001, 2002, was inevitably going to fall. Do you think that all of this was inevitable? Was that government inevitably going to fall to the Taliban, in your opinion? I can say it was inevitable that the U.S. would pull out But it could have pulled out in a more orderly fashion, first of all, to arrange uh, the evacuation of people who would want to, you know, leave, uh, who would be in a desperate need to leave once the U.S. leaves. Secondly, there could have been better coordination with uh, NATO allies. 
I mean, people forget that other NATO countries had their troops. Turkey, my home country, had troops in Afghanistan because the, the war in Afghanistan in 2001 was uh, declared by using the NATO uh, clause about a NATO country being attacked requires other NATO countries come to join the defense. So there was a broader coalition. So I I do agree that U.S. should not have endless wars. Uh, and I think the idea that you, sh- you, you can occupy a Muslim-majority country and bring a democracy to it, I think that was a flawed uh, presumption from the first place. That in that military intervention in the first place triggers dynamics of radicalization, as we've seen in Iraq as well. But uh, these things happen overnight. I mean, some I mean, American president says, "I'm pulling out from Syria. I'm pulling out from uh, Afghanistan." And although that in itself might not be the right thing to do. I think there are experts who say that this could have been done more orderly, and I agree with that argument. I want to ask you then about the specific nature of the way that the the government, the state in Afghanistan, had changed um, from the Taliban, and we'll we'll get into more questions about who the Taliban are, what the Taliban represent, what their ideology is in in a bit here. But you know, you recently have a, a new book out. Why, as a Muslim, I defend liberty. We've heard, I've heard people suggest that uh, this kind of more Western democracy, a more liberal democracy, is just wasn't ever going to work in Afghanistan. Do you do you think that's true? And I, I would assume from the title of your book that you think Islam and liberty are compatible. Uh, what was it? Just the circumstances precipitated by the United States' involvement that made this project ill-fated. Well, uh, it is complicated. I mean, I think to make a broad statement on Islam is difficult in the. Uh, I'll give you one example. I mean, if you were commenting about Christianity and liberal democracy in 17th century Europe by looking at the 30 years war and the persecution of quote unquote heretics by different Christian kingdoms, which believe they had divine rights or kings, you know, you wouldn't be very sympathetic. That changed, of course, obviously, and liberal democracy luckily uh, flourished uh, within the West uh, by some terrible alternatives like fascism coming as an alternative. So I think in Islamic world, you have an evolution and uh, and we, in parts of the Islamic world are like 17th century Europe in the sense that you have these theocracies, brutal groups that want to impose their will, their dictatorships who claim divine rights of sultans or kings. And and uh, it would be, yes, I mean, it's, it, it's difficult in a country like Afghanistan whose tribal nature, culture, uh, and and also the military invasions. Uh, people forget that actually the beginning of the evil, if you will, was the Soviet invasion in 1979, which really traumatized Afghanistan. It was a very brutal invasion, uh, and and it militarized different Afghan groups. So this is a country with a lot of ethnic groups. So if people say it is difficult to uh, develop liberal democracy in a country like this, I will say yes, that's right. But if they say it is impossible and this will always be the case, I would then disagree with that. And I say that, well, there's a battle to be fought. But yes, it's not easy. And uh, part of it is socio-cultural economics and you know, modernization of society and urban life compared to tribal life. Uh, but also it is about doctrines of Islam that we have uh, out there. Uh, and, and that brings us, I think, to the discussion on uh, what's the doctrine of Islam, you know, under the Taliban? 
but or, I mean, uh, I'm just asking a question to myself. But please go ahead. I mean, it's it's your uh, it's your take. No, I I I think we could back up real quick then to something you mentioned, which was uh, the. Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and how that has informed uh, the country and the culture of the country going forward from there. You know, the United States, of course, had a hand in uh, fighting the war in Afghanistan against the Soviets. Um, in, in what ways are the is the current situation in Afghanistan, the situation we've seen since the uh, Soviet Union left, that uh, that Soviet war and that period of occupation, how has it informed the nature of the country uh, in a way that impacts it even now? Uh, people, first of all, let me remind one thing. Some people sometimes make uninformed comments saying that, oh, the Taliban was what the U.S. created against the Soviets, which is wrong. The Taliban was not there. What happened is in, in 1979, when the Soviet invasion began to impose a Soviet-like communist regime, there, there grew resistance in the countryside. And U.S. supported those groups who were known as the Mujahideen uh, at the time. They were not the Taliban. They were not as brutal or fanatic as the Taliban. Uh, they fought and U.S. supported them, and they ultimately defeated the Soviet Union. But there were other groups Hardline Islamists came and joined them to fight against the Soviets. When the Soviets pulled out, all these different militarized groups started fighting with each other. And, and that was the second phase. So if there was no Soviet invasion, there wouldn't be the civil war. So this civil war began. And these Mujahideen groups, I mean, to take Kabul, they killed each other and a lot of people in the city as well. Uh, and some of them were thugs. I mean, when you have a warlike situation like that, when these men have Kalashnikovs and power, and it happens in secular terms or Islamic terms sometimes, some of these were really thugs. I mean, they started brutalizing the population, raping women, that kind of thing. And actually, Taliban arose in 1994 with this very austere, purest Islamic message saying that we will punish the people who are actually raping women or who are thieves. So they actually brought some law and order to some extent. And that is the positive side of the Sharia. I mean, when you say people are scared about the Sharia, well, the Sharia can mean law and order in a lawless society. We've seen that in parts of Africa as well. I mean, thieves are brutally punished. Well, maybe that's too brutal. But then if you have a total chaos and violence, this, is, this brings some something. Uh, but then the Taliban itself dominated the scene. And because its understanding of the Sharia, that is Islamic law, is incredibly brutal and oppressive, they became the only problem in town. Uh, and uh, they were very brutal against other Mujahideen groups on women, on minorities, Shia minorities. And of course, then Al-Qaeda bonded with them. And that's, that's what took us to 9-11 and after that, the U.S. invasion. So there is a whole... Uh, history there. And I think foreign powers, number one, the Soviet Union uh, have some share in this, the, the foregone you know, Soviet Union. Uh, but also uh, the, the way Taliban understand Islam calls for an honest discussion of what the Sharia means. And, uh, and, and also how, they are now saying they have changed and they understand it in more mild or moderate terms. We need to, I think, see those things. But there's certainly a room for also broader discussion here on uh, religion and public life in terms of Islam and public life. So, Sam, I want to get you in here uh, as we continue to watch, again, this kind of unfolding disaster 
unfold. I, I want to put to you the same question I put to Mustafa, which is we're, we're being to- told again and again that this was inevitable, that this was always going to happen. Do, do you think now with a, a week more perspective from the last time we talked on it, do you think this was inevitable? Well, we ne- we'll never know, right? We, we never really know the, uh, the answers to those sorts of questions. Uh, but I think what we do know is that there are clearly limits to the extent to which Western countries can intervene in other countries throughout the world. Uh, I think, for example, that when it comes to uh, America or European Union countries intervening in, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in East Asia, whether it's in Afghanistan or Africa or wherever, uh, I often think that Western countries have cultural blind spots about these sorts of things. And one of the things that I've thought is particularly revealing is that I keep reading uh, reports uh, indicating that, that one of the weaknesses here when it comes to these types of Western interventions, whether it's for a few months or a few years, or in this case, 20 years, a lot of Western countries have difficulty accepting that religion, whatever religion is, is a very important part of the equation. That the Western, much of the Western mindset is to think about these things in terms of geopolitics, in terms of technology, in terms of some of the things that dominate a lot of Western discourse about these issues. And what that means is that religion tends to be marginalized as a factor. Uh, and I think that's that's a big blind spot on the part of many Western policymakers. Western religion is seen as this subjective thing, this thing that is amorphous, you really can't do very much about it. And there's often not a lot of attempt, not a lot of the strong attempt to try and understand what its nature is and why it's important for understanding the politics and the culture of a country like Afghanistan and the different ethnic and religious groups that exist within it. So I think in many cases, unless there is a willingness to take religion seriously, regardless of whether you're a believer or not, I think that Western countries will continue to make serious mistakes when they engage in these types of interventions. I'm not saying these interventions are should never be done. I'm not saying that they're never useful, that they don't sometimes serve a purpose. But you really need to understand the context and the culture in which you're entering into. And I think in this case, I think there was a serious underestimation of the role that religion plays in a country like Afghanistan and the way it shapes people's uh, thinking. I mean, Mustafa was talking about how there's a particular type of Islam that shapes the way that the Taliban view the world. If you're a Western policymaker and you ignore that or you pretend it's not important or you try and relativize it, I think you'll end up making serious mistakes. Well, Sam, do you think this is a case where we've done a certain kind of violence to the way that we as, as Americans think about these things with the way that we've treated both religion in the public square and religion's relationship to politics. You know, I, I remember the great famous line from William F. Buckley that my faith informs my views. But we have uh, within common political conversation now, this desire, uh, particularly, I think it's more pronounced on the left than it is on the right, to say that we we can't have faith inform our political views, that you have like this dichotomy that certain politicians will suggest they have between, um, you know, their personal view on something like abortion and how they view it as a public policy question. 
have we just done so much violence to our own understanding of religion's role in government and statecraft that we can't quite wrap our brains around what's going on in a country like Afghanistan, um, in part because I would go as far as to suggest as well that Americans don't have a good understanding of, by and large, don't have a good understanding of the history of the country and don't have a good understanding of Islam as a particular religion, as, as Mustafa was saying, that you know, you say Sharia, and you can have you could it can mean what Mustafa was saying there in general law and order, but you say it in an American context, and it conjures up some of the moral panic stuff that happened in kind of the mid to late two thousands about Sharia law was going to come to Oklahoma, and they were passing laws against it. Well, I'm sure you've heard the expression that America is a country. Uh, populated by Hindus and ruled by Swedes. <laughs> and uh, that that's, I think, is not a bad understanding of how some of these things function, because I think that certainly at the level of a lot of policymaking, not just on the left, by the way, but also on the right, there is this tendency to sort of push religion out of the picture, to pre- to basically treat it as a sort of artifact that you have to work your way around, but you don't need to spend a lot of time seriously trying to understand why some people are willing to do certain things that to your average secular mind seems incomprehensible. Uh, And so I think there is a certain degree to which this is reflective in American domestic politics. It's interesting when you hear on the, a lot, mostly on the left, but some on the right as well, the way that they talk about religion I mean, I find myself rolling my eyes. I'm sure Mustafa does as well, and you do as well, Eric, because it's very clear they don't have the faintest understanding of some of the very basic teachings of a given religion, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And that way, that the fact that we have marginalized religion in the public square in, should not give us confidence that America and Americans and American policymakers can treat religion with the seriousness with which it needs to be treated if we're going to be engaging in these types of foreign interventions and developing different foreign policy to different parts of the world, where it's all worth remembering, by the way, in this context, that uh, the rest of the world is actually in many respects getting more religious. It's Western Europe and certain parts of the United States that are the exception in this regard. And I think Unless religion is brought into these discussions and there is serious reflection upon why certain people believe certain things, what that means for their actions, let alone what this means relations between America and lots of other Western countries are going to continue to make basic category errors when they're thinking about foreign policy. Mustafa, what what would benefit uh Americans in this conversation um, to understand better about both just Islam in general? First, I guess I I, I should put the question, I should not gloss over what I said. Do do you agree with my assessment that um, Americans uh, have a lack of understanding of Islam as a religion and many misperceptions about Islam as a religion? What would help what would be the most beneficial information for them to know? And then I want to get in specifically about the the ideology of the Taliban um, coming out of that. Well, one thing would be to note that 
the Islamic world, the Muslim world is incredibly diverse. Uh, groups like Taliban represent the darkest end of the spectrum and ISIS probably more, more so. I mean, there are groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, these three groups, right? I mean, they are, they're brutal. They do horrible things. And then there are conservatives who will still have very conservative opinions about family, public life, place of woman, but will not be brutal in that sense. Then there are more moderate Muslims who are in the middle who, who want to balance modern life with their tradition and in, in, in successful ways. That's probably the majority of all Muslims. There are liberal reformists in the sense of trying to revise certain things in the Sharia, uh, making it more compatible with what we call today human rights. There are a lot of Muslims who are just nominal Muslims, who are Muslims by tradition and culture, but who are not really pra so practicing. So that is like 1.6 billion people. And of course, the people who make the news are the, the, the ones that make the most terrible things. So that creates an image of Islam. Uh, so th that's why, I mean, I think it's, it's Americans should not be afraid that some, something called the Sharia will be established in Oklahoma and, you know, going to threaten rights there. But it doesn't mean that there's no problem with the Sharia. I mean, when we, there are about a dozen countries today in the world. There are 50 Muslim majority states. About a dozen of them have Sharia, Islamic law, in their legal system, especially the penal code. So they have things like apostasy laws, blasphemy laws, corporal punishments. So these are major issues. These are major issues about human rights, about religious liberty, uh, on which uh, I'm actually working. And now we will see uh, Afghanistan is becoming one of these countries. Actually, Afghanistan was already an Islamic state before the Taliban take over. I mean, it was officially called the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, but it wasn't certainly uh, in a Taliban-like sense. So again, there's there, there are shades and grades. Uh, but this whole idea that the Sharia, that is Islam's version of halakha, I mean, I, 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 speaking of a comparative point of view, uh, it, it will be always a part of Islam because Sharia tells Muslims not to eat pork, pray towards Mecca, pray five times a day or have a dress code that is conservative. These are all legitimate uh, interpretations and implementations of it in personal life. But when you make what you call the Sharia the law of the land, uh, and, and that Sharia has injunctions that to me actually doesn't represent the core of Islam, but it's historical interpretations such as blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, such as forcing women to wear the hijab rather than just saying as a religious duty, it would be nice you wear it, but rather than policing them for that. So that creates these problems. And uh, now uh, Afghanistan had a very terrible version of that in late 90s. Now Taliban is claiming to be a bit more relatively moderate. We will see how that goes, but it is certainly a major issue there. But I think the West should understand the complexity of this and should not take Taliban as a representative of, of good Muslims. The, as you mentioned there, the Taliban, um, some are claiming that they've made some claims themselves that they've, uh, they've changed since the, uh, from the version of the Taliban that was deposed by the United States in, uh, the early two thousands. Um, what, what are they claiming? In what ways are they claiming to have changed or people who are making these claims asserting about the Taliban? Are they saying that they have changed? And to what extent do you believe that? Uh, let me begin with their claim. And to put it in a nutshell, to make it accessible, I think what they're claiming to be is not another ISIS, but another Saudi Arabia. Uh, what do I mean by that? Two things. First of all, they're they're not 
they're actually the deal that apparently made with the American government, you know, uh, in Doha in the preceding months, includes their promise that they will not host groups like Al Qaeda to launch terrorist attacks on American soil or on on European, you know, soil. Because that was the major thing in, in, for, for the U.S. In, uh, before 2011. They were hosting Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda was attacking the United States. So they probably say, we're going to have Sharia in our own country. This is our country. We're going to implement it. But we're not going to sponsor and support terrorist attacks in other countries. So they're trying to be moderate, quote unquote, in that sense. Uh, will that happen? We'll, I don't know. We'll see. But that's the part of the deal, apparently, that they made. The second thing is, in the 90s, they imposed a Sharia that was the most tough version imaginable, which was also even mixed with some tribal customs. For example, they forced, I mean, that's the most notorious thing about a Taliban, right? They forced all women to wear the burqa, that is head-to-toe covering, so you can't see the face. Now, according to actually Hanafi law that they claim to subscribe, uh, covering the face of a woman is not obligatory, but recommended. So, I mean, it's nice if you do it, it's an extra piety, but you don't have to do it sort of thing. So they are now saying we will not impose the burqa, which is not necessarily must, according to our understanding of Islam, but we will just force the headscarf. That's why I say, I'm saying it will look like Iran or Saudi Arabia, but not, not probably not like ISIS. Uh, they were very brutal on the Shiites uh, in the 90s. In the first days, you know, they actually said we tolerate Shiite uh, ceremonies, religious festivals, uh, rituals, and so on and so forth. I think what has happened in the past 20 years is that in the 90s, Taliban was an incredibly parochial movement. They've seen the world a little bit, thanks to context in Doha, especially. Uh, and in the countryside, they learned that to win the people, you have to be less brutal and a bit more focusing on uh, law and order and sometimes even uh, allow certain uh, local customs. So they may be a little bit relative. But however, what they will establish is they call it an emirate. So and, and by the way, that's also the distinction between ISIS. ISIS called itself a caliphate to which all Muslims should give allegiance, according to their understanding. Emirate is a more modern. It's like, this is our country. This is an Islamic country. Um, they will certainly oppress. I mean, they will not, it's not going to be a democracy. <laughs> so they will choose their leader as the leader of the country. I'm sure they will not allow any public protests. They will call it fitna, that is sedition in Islam, and they will be probably very brutal against it. So it will be a, a totalitarian uh, Islamic order, as they understand, as them being the only legitimate interpreters of Islam and tolerating other groups to some extent, like Shiites or other Sunnis who don't buy into their ideas. Now there is a pocket of resistance. They are going after that uh, in a valley uh, just outside of Kabul. So they, they will not allow. So it will be oppressive. It will be like initial Saudi Arabia. I mean, uh, the beginning of Saudi Arabia was a Wahhabism that moderated itself a little bit to become a state. So I think it will be something like that, which is terrible for the future of Afghanistan. I understand and sympathize with the people who want to flee Afghanistan today and establish new lives out there. And how to, of course, deal with them is a big uh, responsibility and uh, for all the countries around and, and the U.S. as well. Because, I mean, if you have engaged in yourself in a country, if you hire people as uh, translators, and if these people are going to be killed after you leave, I think you sh you have a moral obligation to care about those people. 
Yeah, Sam, I, I want to turn to that, that, the refugee issue. We had a really great piece published by our own uh, Joe Sunday mm-hmm. um, uh, on Friday about what should be our disposition towards the refugees that are seeking to get out of Afghanistan, particularly, as Mustafa mentioned, the ones who helped the United States. And I think that really underlines what is enraging to a lot of people about looking at the way that this is is turning out, that you can agree with the proposition that you know the United States probably should have gotten out 10 years ago after they got Osama bin Laden, shouldn't have been there for 20 years, could not continue. Continue to be there for another, you know, 20, 60, 100 years that they don't want to be there forever. Uh, but that we've been so ham handed in the way that we have tried to get out the people who needed to get out that we don't really know about Americans who are, first of all, Americans who are scattered around the country. We don't know how many are there and how many are trying to get out. But then, of course, you have the secondary question of people who are refugees seeking to get out of Afghanistan and how many we should welcome here. What what do you think our disposition should be towards refugees seeking to escape the rule of the Taliban? Well, I think the the most basic moral obligation that is operative here is that the United States has employed significant numbers of Afghanis, people guarding uh, American compounds, people who have worked as translators, people who have worked as staffers at American civilian and military uh, bases throughout Afghanistan. Uh, Those people, it's very clear, are directly threatened by the Taliban because they're seen as traitors, they're seen as people who have aided the West, et cetera, et cetera. And the United States and other Western countries could not have done what they did in Afghanistan, whether in terms of fighting the Taliban or tracking down al-Qaeda and tracking down Osama bin Laden without the help of these people. So it seems to me that a basic minimum is that those people who have directly helped in some way the United States and Western countries, if, if there's ever a case for refugee status, if there's ever a case for the United States taking people on the basis of, of refugee status, this is surely it. I, I, I cannot see why the United States would not take people who have worked closely with the American government in Afghanistan and aided its efforts. Uh, it's, you know, in, in the end, we now see unsuccessful efforts to establish a particular type of regime there. So that strikes me as the, the absolute minimum. Other countries are doing this, uh, Britain, France, Australia, they're evacuating people who have worked very closely with them. At the basic minimum, it seems to me that this is something that the United States should be doing for those Afghans who have worked very directly with them. Then, of course, there's those categories of Afghanis who are being threatened by the Taliban for other reasons. Now, to my mind, uh, they meet the the criteria of being genuine refugees. The United States does have a program where it allows people who are genuinely at risk of their lives, genuinely uh, at risk of serious persecution, to enter the United States. So again, I think those people should be definitely eligible for that. And that's, of course, is quite consistent with the American tradition of welcoming people who are facing persecution, whether it's religious or political or any other form, to the United States where they are supposed to be able to enjoy liberties that are denied to them in other parts of the world. So, I mean, one can have different arguments about immigration, 
Uh, one can say that um, that that there can be limits to immigration. Uh, I don't think there's. Um, I, I I don't think, for example, that the notion that someone just wants to come to the United States means they're entitled to come to the United States. That doesn't work philosophically or uh, politically or morally, I think. But in the case of the people that we're talking about in Afghanistan, the two categories of people that I've mentioned, it seems to me that the United States, at a minimum, should be getting out those people and granting them refugee status if they've worked with the United States. And those people who are at serious risk of persecution because of their religious, political, or any other reason, uh, should, at a minimum, be, be, be considered for being given some type of refugee status in the United States. Mustafa, I want to go one final question on this topic to you. So after 20 years, uh, the United States is is leaving Afghanistan. Um, the, the American political debate is going to continue on about this as it has for the previous 20 years, what our posture is, has been towards Afghanistan. What What is to you the biggest thing that uh, we, the biggest lesson we should take away from the experience here of the last 20 years of what has transpired in Afghanistan and how it is now ending? Sure. And let me answer that with a um, with a comparison that people have in mind today. Uh, a lot of people, you know, recalled Saigon in 1975, you know, the U.S. pull out from Vietnam. Uh, but I would like to add one more thing to that. Uh, indeed, there are some similarities with Saigon here, Vietnam being something like the Viet Cong, of course, from a religious point of view. Um, I went to Saigon about a dozen years ago, and what struck me was that the, that building that the Americans were leaving with the helicopter, now in, in, in Vietnam, it's a museum of communism and capitalist crimes or something like that. So it's, it shows how the Americans were pushed out and how glorious communist revolution came and so on and so forth. But the funny thing is when you leave that building and walk a few hundred meters, you come to the market, and the first thing you see is Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, so actually, yes, America was pulled out from uh, Saigon and from Vietnam with military uh, as, as a military force. But ultimately, uh, freedom works and capital, free market works and capitalism works. And ultimately, Vietnam adopted to market economy as China did, although politically uh, not. Now, that is the lesson, I think. Uh, and communism collapsed in the world. I mean, that we, we forgot that. I mean, basically, besides uh, the hybrid regime in China today. And communism not collapsed not because America invaded all the communist countries and quote-unquote liberated them. Uh, quite the contrary, communism collapsed because of its own inherent contradictions and, and because it was an oppressive regime and ultimately hunger for liberty with work within communism, plus the, its economic irrationality and uh, inefficiency led to its collapse. What America did was to just keep freedom alive. And I think uh, when we see groups like the Taliban today, whose ideology, just like communism, is a challenge to liberty, I think uh, my advice to the West, including the U.S., would be to just keep freedom alive, keep the heart bar high. That includes uh, keeping uh, liberty of freedom within the U.S. in terms of religious freedom, freedom of speech, uh, not giving into racism or some other extreme right or wing right or extreme left ideologies that we're seeing these days. And I think once that happens, Taliban will run a country and now uh, they will have to make decisions if they are very, uh, very, very oppressive and very rational. 
they will they will go down with their own contradictions, uh, not because there's a military force that is uh, taking over them. As we transition topics to uh, the coronavirus, I want to thank Mustafa for joining us on uh, the show today. This is where we'll say goodbye to him. So, Mustafa, thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights on this incredibly important topic. A lot still to happen uh, in, in Afghanistan in the coming weeks. So we may be talking to you again. But thank you for being on the program today. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Sam, for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to, to Acton uh, Broadcast. So, Sam, I want to turn to the still ongoing coronavirus pandemic. So today, Monday, the FDA has announced that it has finally given full approval to the COVID vaccines that have people have already been uh, have been able to get, but under emergency authorization. And what what I find interesting from from certain quarters is that the goalposts are already being moved, right? So there was uh, there are people saying like, why should we trust a vaccine that uh, hasn't had given given full approval from the FDA? And now it's well, the FDA rushed approval. And yeah, there are some people who are never going to be pleased with all of this. But it, to me, it strikes me that the game is is a marginal one, right? You, you're trying to move as many people as you can to get them vaccinated, and there is a non-zero group, and perhaps even a sizable group of people that having FDA approval for the vaccine will convince them to get it. What I'm interested in is how how we have tolerated this inaction, slow action, ridiculous action from the FDA for so long uh, that they if you look at it back to the beginning of the pandemic, the way that the agencies, the federal government agencies that were supposed to be responsive to this have just utterly failed left and right from the, uh, you know, the uh, CDC wanting to be the only provider of coronavirus tests in the beginning that they weren't able to get that underway. You see the remarkably quick development of these vaccines and then how slow even an expedited FDA process was to get it rolled out. Is this just part and parcel of an agency like the FDA? Or is there any hope in, you know, once again, restoring people's faith in these institutions uh, that they can actually handle things in a swift and appropriate way? Because from my perspective, the way that you hear about the FDA, it's like, yeah, you know, we'll come back on Monday. We'll think about it. We'll see this. What else is the FDA doing other than looking at the efficacy of the coronavirus vaccines? Is there any other major issue they should be dealing with? I struggle to think of one? Well, I think what you're pointing to, Eric, are, are two things. One is this general malaise with institutions in the United States that's reflected in the fact that large numbers of Americans simply don't trust these types of institutions. Uh, you and I have talked a little bit about this before. We know, for example, now that in the initial stages of the pandemic, uh, CDC officials told untruths, told untruths at the very beginning, uh, knowing certain things were likely to be the case, but then told us the opposite, the argument being that, well, this is necessary in order to manage the situation. We don't want rushes on supplies of things, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that comes at a cost, and the cost is institutional credibility. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is that uh, for all the talk about America being this sort of dynamic capitalist economy, and there's, a, there's elements of that in the United States, there's no question about that, there's also aspects of the American economy which are almost in some respects 
Soviet-like. We see this with so many of our regulatory agencies. I mean, the attention has been focused upon this in the case of the, uh, the FDA because of COVID, because it took such a long period of time for them to express approval, to give approval, etc. This is not actually uncommon. This happens all the time with any number of drugs and inventions that are put out there. Now, I don't have a problem with there being some type of agency that does an assessment of the risks, some assessment of the potential side effects, that does tests, etc. I don't know many people who are out there saying, you know, just do what you want, and if there's going to be consequences, we'll just deal with them later. There's a, there's a place for some of these institutions, but what is very clear is that they do behave very much like a regulatory agency. They're slow. Their priorities are not the same as patients or the medical companies, for that matter. Uh, they, they err on the side of the precautionary principle, which I think has slowed down an enormous amount of medical and pharmaceutical development in the United States. And we've seen this sort of put on a stage over the past year and a half that it's impossible for people to ignore. So one would hope that whenever this pandemic moves on or we get used to living with it, which I think is what's going to happen at some point, maybe we'll have some type of serious debate about how ineffective, so not just the fact that they're distrusted now for good reason, but also how ineffective so many of these agencies are at doing their job. And maybe we'll have some serious discussion about better ways in which these tasks can be completed, whether it's through some type of decentralization, whether it's through some type of moving some of these things towards a more private sector approach to the way that you think about these sorts of questions, one would hope that we'll be able to have some type of serious debate about these types of issues once we move through this. At, at the moment, I'm not optimistic that that will, that will happen. Uh, I don't think the general climate is inclined towards that. I think there's plenty of people who don't want that type of debate to happen. But that, I think, is surely what we would want to happen once we move into some type of environment in which lots of people are vaccinated, where people are starting to re relive their lives, where we get used to the fact that, yes, there are things like diseases around, and for the most part, we learn to live with them. Yeah, it's another reminder that incentives matter, right? And, and the way yes. people are incentivized to act matters. If you are somebody at the FDA, the last thing that you want is to be known as the person that approved something like thalidomide, which turns yes. out to do a ton of damage and harms a lot of people. So you err on the side of not giving approval rather than on, you know, approaching it in a more rational way to say that, like, we think that the benefits of this outweigh the risks of it. Because again, everything in life is trade-offs. I think we should, uh, one of the main problems we have in talking about Afghanistan right now is an inability to view the decision-making process in terms of trade-offs. But we're just lousy with this problem of not really viewing things in terms of the trade-offs that actually exist. You see this also in policy now in Australia and New Zealand. Yes. That the, the trade-off yes. that they seem to want to make is one, uh, given to the idea that we can somehow reach COVID zero, that we're going to be able to get beyond this thing existing, which is just completely irrational and not going to happen. But the reaction of New Zealand to shut down the entire country to 
lock everyone down on the basis of one case is almost so cartoonish as to be unbelievable that it actually happened. And yet here we are with New Zealand doing this with Australia. Again, based on I was I got uh, information this morning from a friend who used to live in Australia saying that uh, it was in New South Wales. I think the number of cases are incredibly small. And what is constantly being left out of the conversation, what did he say here? New South Wales today recorded 830 new locally acquired coronavirus cases, surpassing yesterday's record spike of 825. Three people have died from COVID-19, taking the total death toll from the current outbreak to 71. There's a population of uh, 8.17 million people. And we're, I think this is the other pandemic that we're living through, Sam, is innumeracy, that people just cannot seem to process the simple trade-offs in terms of the numbers and viewing them with any sense of perspective, whether it's the innumeracy or the irrationality of thinking we can get to COVID zero or changing the metrics on which we're evaluating it, that we're now talking about cases and not hospitalizations and deaths, that we're um, – we're not talking about what has been the benchmark up until now, which is those hospitalizations and deaths, as if people want to live in some kind of a perpetual panic about this. Yes. Uh, well, as you know, I'm Australian by birth, so I've been following what's going on there pretty closely. And everything you say is true. Uh, the other thing which is interesting is that basically the political class there, on both sides, have locked themselves into a position whereby they're saying, we can stop this, we can suppress this. That's how they've, that's the language and the, and the rhetoric that they have used right from the very beginning, which they've used to justify these massive lockdowns. You know, you have two people get a case, suddenly a whole city gets locked down. 20 people get a case, a whole state gets locked down. So the, the political class has now locked itself into this type of bind. Because to step back from that and say, well, I guess COVID zero wasn't such an idea, good idea. I guess we can't stop this disease in perpetuity. I guess we're going to have to learn to live with it. Basically calls into question the policies adopted by the federal government and all state governments of all sides of politics over the past year and a half. So it's a classic example whereby the political self-interest of the political class now differs very, very radically from what you might call the common good and the way that Australians and, for that matter, New Zealanders are going to deal with this issue going forward. I think also the point that you made about how we think about these things, how we deal with these things, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that it has revealed to us just how fragile so much of our society is. Now, I'm not trying to play down the, the significance of a pandemic. A pandemic is a very serious matter. In the Spanish flu, which was one of the very big pandemics of the, of the 20th century, it's estimated that something like close to anywhere between um, maybe 100 million people were affected by this into in, in the point of death. And we're not talking about those sorts of numbers now in our present context. So I don't want to play that down. I'm not trying to play down the seriousness of the whole thing. But your point about, first of all, the trade-offs, okay, if you're going to do this, you have to accept 
you're going to do these massive lockdowns, you have to accept massive economic damage. You have to accept there's going to be people who will have health problems of another nature because they can't go to their doctor. You're going to have to accept there's going to be a rise in family breakdown and divorce. You're going to have to accept a fair, a, a considerable rise in the degree of mental illness and depression. And it's fascinating to me that these sorts of things have been basically ruled out of conversation by so many people. The second thing is something we also talked about, this, this precautionary principle, that the self-interest of regulators lies in the direction of, I don't want to be the guy or the gal who signs off on this drug because there's a possibility it might be like thamaldehyde. Um, the the uh, the drug that induced terrible disability yeah, yeah. thalidomide that induced terrible disabilities uh, on children. No one wants to be the signer off for that. But you know, life is about risk. Life is about take making trade offs. And at some level, you do need to make decisions. You can't just sit back all the time and say, "Well, I'm not going to do that because this might happen," or "I'm not going to do that because this might happen." At some point. You need to be actually willing to exercise your freedom. Otherwise, what's the point of having it in the first place? Well, that that it leads to just logical cul-de-sacs, right? So if yes. you if if you're going to prioritize the precautionary principle over everything, then that is an argument for having a speed limit of three miles an hour, um, which of course people would clearly recognize as being you know nuts and workable. But it's the same logic that's at, that's at work there. We're running a little long, but I want to get this last bit in there, which is something that I've been thinking about over the course of the last uh, week, but also over the course of the pandemic, which is I'm uncertain if we are, and this could be just an indictment of elite culture. And, you know, I'm a little hesitant to talk about elites in that way, uh, in the way that so much of what I think is just ridiculous conversation happens about the elites. But are we less competent now than we used to be? This struck me more with Afghanistan that, you know, the way the military used to operate itself, the way Americans used to react to these kinds of things, what I mentioned earlier in that conversation about Afghanistan, the idea of the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs standing up there and saying, well, we're going to do the best that we possibly can to get as many Americans as we can out of the country before the clock runs out. It the inability to have planned for this properly, it, you know, was it always true? And we just have this rapidity now of information that is available to people that makes it seem to us or more obvious to us that they don't know what they're doing or more so now than in the past, we really just don't know what they're, what we're doing. And the people who are in positions of power are really this incompetent. And I can't for the life of me figure out which it is. I assume it's probably a combination of both. But it certainly seems like we have more incompetent people running things. But I just don't know if it's that or the nature of information technology and social media that puts so much more rapid information right in front of us that allows us to look at the actions of the people supposedly in control and realize that they're not in control of anything. Well, I think it's basically a combination of the two things that you described. So we have massive amounts of access to information now that we didn't have even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. So, And so that's the first thing. So we just know a lot more. So that means we're just a lot less in awe 
of those people who are elected to public office or who hold senior government and military and civilian positions, we're just a lot less in awe because we know much more. And we have immediate access. And we've needed yes, access right. to information that we don't know. So when we know we don't know right. something, you can call it up on your phone, which you couldn't do 25 years ago. Correct, correct. But on the, at the same time, um, I'm not sure that our leaders today are necessarily showing a higher degree of incompetence than, than in the past. I, I often think about this in terms of, say, both World War I and World War II. Imagine being um, in charge of, uh, 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 say, the Normandy invasion or um, being responsible for some of the things that happened on the Western Front in the First World War in our time. Can you imagine the sort of endless commentary that would go on about everything that Montgomery did or Eisenhower did or some strategy that the Nazi regime was doing, the endless commentary that would be going on? And, And so... But we know now, when we, thanks to historians, that there was enormous degrees of incompetence that, hand, that were reflected, for example, in the way that the federal government reacted to the Great Depression, in the way that governments around the world ran the First World War, the, ran the Second World War, the way that they reacted in the past to pandemics. We know a lot more now that um, we are actually, in, I think, in less awe of them than we once were. So... I'm not sure it's necessarily the case that our leaders are more incompetent than they were in the past. I think they're more subject to sways in public opinion. I think they're much, they have to be much more reactive to the immediate because of these technological innovations that enable us to have so many people accessing so much information almost immediately. But I'm not sure the degree of incompetence is any more or any less. These people are being required to deal with incredibly difficult, fast-moving situations. And sometimes more information isn't always necessarily helpful when it comes to making decisions about these sorts of things. So I would say it's basically a combination of these things, more information, more knowledge, uh, which shows up that many of our leaders are uh, as incompetent as in- leaders have been incompetent in the, in the past. Our knowledge of their incompetence, our knowledge of the way that they make mistakes has simply been speeded up and magnified to an extent unknown in human history before. Let's call it a wrap there. I want to thank you all for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast in the Acton Line podcast feed or on our website, acton.org, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind on whatever you use to listen to fine podcasts. This podcast, again, is new. So please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thank you to our special guest today, Mustafa Akiol. And if you uh, didn't see it, there was an episode of Acton Line last week with Mustafa that we highly recommend that you check out. So thank you to him for joining us this week on the program. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>